Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Mexican-American religious healing, often called curanderismo, is a vital component of life on the U.S.-Mexican borderlands. In his book, Border Medicine, A Transcultural History of Mexican-American Curanderismo, Brett Hendrickson tracks healers going back to the 19th century and even before. He argues that these healing practices have never only been about Mexican-Americans and have certainly never been a sign of their inability to develop modern biomedicine. They have in fact been shaped in a transcultural context where ideas about metaphysical healing and the efficacy of gifted individuals circulated among Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, and Anglo-American settlers. Each population has contributed to the development and growing popularity of folk curanderismo. Brett Hendrickson is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. I'm happy to welcome him to the program. Hello and welcome. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for being here. So I want to begin our discussion by asking you a broad question. What drew you to the study of religion in the U.S.? Uh, Well, I I guess partially my vocation. Um, Out of college, I went to seminary and and worked for a a while as a Presbyterian minister, um, but knew that what really interested me about the ministry was the teaching and the education and the study. And so I eventually ended up back in graduate school uh, studying American religious history at Arizona State. And, um, you know, it just kind of progressed and grew from there. You know, I don't think I had a fully formed idea of, of what my scholarly career would be when I started graduate school. And so what drew you to Arizona State? Was it that you were working on this, these kinds of questions about the borderlands before you got to grad school? Yes. I mean, when I started my intention for uh, dissertation study for, for the for dissertation study was going to be uh, studying folk healing, perhaps, but more, more I was interested in folk religious uh, devotions around folk saints. Uh, in the in the Mexican American borderlands, um, you know, I'd read a few books. I think uh, before going back to school, that really fascinated me. Um, when I was a little younger, maybe um, yeah, late teens, early twenties, I lived for a couple years in very far from this uh, from there, but nevertheless in Latin America, in in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and um, had learned had the opportunity to be uh, exposed there and in travels around South America to some folk religious practices and just knew that was the thing. Um, Arizona state seemed like a great program. Um, it was relatively new. And um, also just to be honest, it was near where my wife is from. She's from Arizona. Those kinds of things are important. We, yeah. can, we can be humans as well as scholars. <laughs> exactly. So maybe we can think of um, or begin with a sort of quick definition of curanderismo. As you mentioned, the LaRousse Spanish-English Dictionary seems satisfied by defining it as quackery. <laughs> can you help us to refine that a little bit? Uh, yeah. What is it? And and who are the curanderos? 
Right. The curanderos or the curanderas are uh, healers. And that word is not only in the Mexican-American or the Mexican context. It's, it's a Spanish word from the Iberian Peninsula, and it's used throughout Latin America for healers, uh, just from the verb curar, to cure. Um, traditionally, uh, the healers drew on a variety of of remedies and of worldviews and of, and of um, modalities to heal people um, coming from European kind of medieval European Catholicism and saint veneration uh, and also trying to fight demons and things like that and witches um, to um, humoral medicine that the Spanish inherited uh, from the Arabs who brought it uh, via Greece, uh, this idea that there are four humors that have to be in balance in the body. Uh, and then once after the Spanish uh, conquest of, of much of the Americas, uh, there were other uh, Native American indigenous healing um, pharmacopoeia that were imported or combined with uh, curanderismo and uh, other ideas too about the, the soul as being a fractured or a fracturable entity in the person that can be break, broken into various parts that can lead to, to illness. And so all these things came together eventually in, um, in a tradition uh, that still survives. What's pharmacopoeia that you just mentioned? Yeah, like herbs or uh, different natural flora that are substances that people would use as medicine. So today then, uh, curanderos, the people who you were studying in the borderlands, what kinds of illnesses would they be curing? What sorts of things would they be doing? Right, that's a really good question. I mean, uh, they can cure a lot of different things or, or they, they at least treat a lot of different things um, from aches and pains to stomach complaints, uh, sometimes um, a lot of um, psychological issues maybe with anxiety or uh, depression. They would treat those sorts of things. Um, traditionally, I think people would be more likely to go to a hospital nowadays, but bone setting and minor surgery were things that uh, a curandero would be able to do. Uh, they have a, a long massage uh, tradition that they called, uh, the person who does massage is called a sobador or a sobadora. Uh, and so they'll, you know, they can treat stomach illnesses, uh, skin conditions. Um, every once in a while, they'll maybe do something with, with one of the senses, like hearing or sight. Um, and uh, also, in some cases, if, if the diagnosis is that you have been cursed or bewitched, then there would be um, sort of that sort of healing could take place, too, in removing a curse. So what is clear, obviously, to any of our listeners now is that this is really a book about healing, of course. Yeah. And, and you begin with some theoretical discussions about how to understand faith healing, especially the work of Tom Shortash. Can you tell us a bit about what this project contributes to that literature through the study of a hybrid borderland place? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I was really drawn to that Tom Shortash's ideas about um, how narrative contributes to the way religious healing works. And he talks about narratives of predisposition, uh, rhetorics of predisposition, that people are really formed um, sort of you know, the way a practice theorist might talk about how people live in, in their habitus and 
the stories and the assumptions and the, the other formations of their cultures surround them all the time in such a way that have uh, an effect on their bodies, that they, their body, they, they know their own bodies only through those ways. And so if there is a religious narrative or, or, or another sort of cultural narrative that talks about wellness or sickness or healing or, or getting better restoration, that Jordan says that those sorts of things, the, 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 those sorts of narratives can actually have a somatic effect on the body. You know, they can change how your body is, is working. Um, what, what I think i discovered i don't know that's that's a little highfalutin to say that but i think that what you said what was the contribution uh i think what's interesting about border zones is that it's it's really hard sometimes to say well there is certainly is this narrative that's operating for all the people uh you, you it's this place of so much fertility and contact and contestation um appropriation sometimes but people really um coming together with narratives all crashing together all the time, uh, that it's really hard in some ways to say, well, the reason religious healing works for me is because I believe in it and it follows all my assumptions. Uh, one of the questions I tried to answer with this book is if, okay, if we can assume that curanderismo might work for someone who believes in it, who's part of the Mexican-American or Mexican communities, that's fine. But what if it also works for someone from outside of those narrative boundaries or those cultural boundaries and one of the things the book looks at then is trying to develop an idea that among Anglo-American culture, there are resonant narratives with the sorts of narratives that buttress curanderismo. So to give our readers a bit of a sense, what's one story that really stands out for you of one of those maybe Anglo-American settlers who is cured or runs into curanderismo? Yeah, there's a, there was a, a very famous healer uh, turn of the century, the last century, in the very southern tip of Texas uh, named Don Pedrito. And he mostly worked with Mexican ranchers and Mexican-Americans uh, in the area. Uh, but I did a study of his healing and found that up to 15% of his clients were Anglos or Anglo-Americans at any given time and uh, found some fairly uh, hilarious um, stories as well that he would. He had really unique cures. Uh, one guy, for example, had something wrong with his feet, and I tell the story in the book of he um, Don Pedrito told the white rancher to uh, dump a can of tomatoes in each of his boots and, and glomp around in those all day long, and uh, it apparently had wonderful effects. And uh, he he became a convert to to believing in Don Pedrito and the power of curanderismo. <laughs> So was Don Pedrito also selling tomatoes? Yeah, right. Sort of a side gig? <laughs> that, that would have been good. <laughs> one of the things actually that I find so exciting about this book, so, you know, one um, one aspect of the literature that, that you're talking about is the healing literature, of course. We discussed that a little bit. But another aspect that's so exciting is that it's foregrounding these kinds of stories that we don't think about normally as at the center of American, U.S. American religion. Right. How uh, how are you, along with other scholars of the West, perhaps, or Hispanic um, religion, trying to shake up our conceptions of that meta-narrative in U.S. history? Yeah, right. I, I really hope that this book is situated in that kind of literature. And, you know, thinking about U.S. history, a religious history, rather, you know, it's we've been working on this now for more than a decade, but the idea that it's not merely an East to West movement of 
uh, Puritan or, or pluralist whites bringing their message of Protestant or Catholic Christianity across you know, the continent, uh, that there have been all sorts of different movements um, throughout our history coming from lots of different vectors, from, from north to south, uh, from the Pacific Rim into the into the North American continent, and of course, as, as this book more talks about, uh, more of a south to north uh, direction of what can happen. Uh, the other thing that I hope happens in this book and in other similar sorts of efforts is to think of Mexican-American religions and religious practices not merely as some sort of ethnic exotica that, that are part of you know an ethnic studies museum, but to show that they really are integral and have had a huge effect on American religious history writ large and will continue to do so as, uh, as our history you know, continues. So maybe we can get back to some of these portraits of, of a few of these healers. I mean, they really stand, sure. stand out in the text. Um, you know, there's some colorful characters. I mean, tomatoes and boots and all that. <laughs> How did you choose which healers to focus on um, in this text? Well, that's a good question. And I think whenever an historian decides to study um, uh, a group of people that isn't necessarily the economic elite or the the winners of history, so to speak. Uh, you can sometimes you can be really limited by what survives in the historical record. And so I think at least earlier in the book, a lot of the figures that I work with are at the top of their game. You know, internationally renowned folk healers, uh, which in some ways is is regrettable because they're not necessarily the most typical of healers, but they're the ones who have left an historical record, who have newspaper articles that can that I can find, who have been looked at by other scholars, so I can, you know, have a conversation in the secondary literature. Uh, so that in in one sense, you know, these really big characters are the ones that made their mark on history in a way that an historian in twenty, you know, in this decade can can look at. Um, on the other hand, I think that, you know, we can read between the lines. Uh, we can find smaller mentions of healers doing things uh, and try to resurrect those stories as well and try to, you know, de- develop what the fabric of religious and healing life was like for people um, outside of maybe the limelight of the, the most famous healers. Uh, but that's that's trickier in, in some ways and, and sometimes involves a little speculation, which, you know, can can put an historian on on thin ice. So at the risk of putting you on thin ice, <laughs> what, what what do you speculate would be, I mean, for sort of the average healer? So yeah. not not your Nino Fidencios or your Teresa Urreras, who are right. people who you um, mention in this text. And I want to get back to them. But for the average average healer you know, of, of no especial renown. Yes. What might their life have been like? Would they have been more likely to be a woman or a man? What kinds of um, clientele would they have been drawing? Almost certainly they would have been women. Uh, I think that it was very typical for women in Mexican and Mexican-American households, uh, and maybe this is still the case in certain areas today, to have some healing knowledge to treat their families and occasionally someone would rise above other family healers and get sort of a neighborhood practice uh, or come to be known as, you know, the person to go to for special knowledge, the person who would specialize in these things. Um, I would speculate, and I didn't find a lot about this, but I would speculate that during the time of 
um, you know, after the Mexican-American War, when there was a lot of Anglo settlement in the region and the growth of um, large Anglo um, economic interests like ranching or, or railroads or things like that that involved Mexican-American workers, my speculation would be it would not be uncommon at all to know that Mexican-American healers were being uh, were treating or being an important resource for a diverse community in that sort of, you know, the Wild West that we might imagine, um, you know, of, of ranches and in the building of, of mines and, and towns and industry in the West. And so some of these women would have been mainly treating men, potentially, if they had been in those environments? That's certainly very possible. Men, um, as well as 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 children in the communities. Um, and it, it, I would never say that mostly people outside of the Mexican-American ethnic community, um, mostly it would be within the community, but still that, that, um, that it would be impossible to ignore in a, in a situation without uh, tons of, of medical doctors or also in the situation that, you know, the medical doctors weren't necessarily much more effective in that period anyway, that you wouldn't make, uh, use of a local healer that had herbal remedies uh, that knew how to treat day to day maladies that people were dealing with. Right. So, of the sort of superstars, <laughs> if you will, um, who were also treating day to day maladies, but they were also treating much more important people and even traveling as well. So, I, mean, right. I was really struck by um, Nino Fidencio, oh, who so I fast. mentioned before, and Teresa Urrea. Or is it Urrea? Urrea, yeah. Urrea, Urrea. yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, can you tell us a few incidences from their lives that stand out for you or that were really important as you crafted the narratives of their lives? Absolutely. Um, we'll start with Te- Teresa Urrea. Uh, one of the things that was most interesting about her uh, especially in comparison to some of these others, is that she was a beautiful young woman. And one of the ways that I think that she became famous, besides being a very powerful healer, is that she was taken advantage of by male communities, I think, uh, starting in some ways possibly with her father, who um, came across the border with her. Uh, but she eventually ended up working for sort of a medicine show uh, that traveled the country from California all the way to um, New York City. Um, when I was working on writing this book, I went to the public li- I would lived in uh, outside St. Louis, Missouri, and I was really excited one day. I, was, uh, I knew it was there, but I, I found it and looked at it with my own eyes that, you know, the story that came from when she had stopped in St. Louis and had had a, a major sort of healing revival for people there. Uh, and a lot of the stories uh, couldn't stop themselves from commenting, the male reporters, that uh, part of her appeal was her soft and feminine touch um, that would give you sort of a, a bit of a frisson and, and that would be part of the healing. Uh, and what, what era are we talking about here? Of the first couple decades of the, of the 20th century. Uh, yes. Uh, when, when you got a, a frisson uh, just uh, by touching a, right, right. a pretty that girl. Was good enough, right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and moreover, a sort of a, a Mexican princess, they would sometimes say, which, you know, was certainly uh, a bit of an embroiderment, but that's, you know, there you go. Um, with Nino Fidencio, I think the thing that is really great about studying him, and I think that a lot more could be said, and I hope someone takes on this study soon, is that Fidencismo, his movement, is really on the move. Um, 
one of the things about Nino Fidencio that's different from some of these other big healers is that, uh, as I talk about in the book, he is channeled by his followers, uh, his hundreds of followers. And so in some ways, at least by their own reckoning, he, Nino Fidencio, even though I think he died in 19... 19- the 30s, I, I want to say, uh, maybe the early 40s, he, um, he still is around. He still communicates with his followers in his voice, in his persona, and he still has his incredible hearing, healing miraculous power to advise people on how to get better from very serious illnesses, sometimes cancer, uh, you know, things that would be fatal. Um, and so that's a really interesting study, I think, that could still be really carried out looking at the way Fidencio as a person has changed over the years in the way he is represented or represents himself, depending on what perspective you're looking at um, among his, his mediums. And so what was he like as a person while he was healing in the 1920s, 1930s? He was an odd guy. Um, There are speculations that he uh, had some sort of syndrome that meant that he never went through puberty um, he had a very high and keening voice and apparently uh, had sort of a puffiness about him um, and an, an innocence about him. Uh, there, I've even read speculations that he wasn't necessarily, um, that he might have had some, some um, mental delays, that he might you know, not have been completely um, on top of things in that same, uh, you know. Um, and so he was... Oddly, uh, I think, unlike other people, which probably added in in some ways to his charisma, uh, and he was undoubtedly charismatic, he he would come up with these really outlandish cures. Uh, One of the ones that he's well known for is he had a giant swing on his ranch, um, you know, 20 feet high, and especially people with nerve disorders, he would get in the swing with them or he would cause them to swing very, very high in this dangerous swing and pretty much scare the sickness out of them. Uh, The other thing that he is known for is um, he was a real dandy in some ways, and one of the things that's nice about Nino Fidencio is he worked with a local photographer and he would like to, he liked to do dress up. So he would dress up in all these crazy costumes, but also costumes with a lot of religious significance. He dressed up as Jesus Christ oftentimes, um, posing near crosses or, or, you know, even sort of laying on a cross, uh, where he would also dress, um, evocatively as the Virgin of Guadalupe. Um, and sort of little, you know, religious gender bending. Um, one of the images I include in the book, which is just fantastic, is uh, the Nino Guadalupano, where he is draped in in a in a robe like that of the the Virgin of Guadalupe, the the patroness of of Mexico. Uh, but in his chest, he has the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the the suffering and and compassionate Sacred Heart of Jesus. And so, for his followers, he ends up having. Um, a, a place in the pantheon that's akin to Jesus and Mary uh, in power and in 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 omnipresence. So, fascinating guy. And so, he would actually be setting up these photo shoots rather than doctoring images later on. Exactly right. He would set them up, and uh, you know, again, it's hard to know from the historical record how much he was being uh, manipulated. But there are so many of these, and he was so theatrical in his healing. Uh, I tend to think that it was his his desire to to frame himself in those ways. So you note at the beginning of the book 
that in some ways you're bringing together two conversations. One is how Coranderos saw themselves or, or their followers, for example, mm-hmm. in the case of Fidencio. And the other one is how scholars have understood what they do. Right. What was, what was one of the most, what's the challenge there? And what was one of the most challenging aspects of bringing those two modes of discourse together for you? That's a great question. I, you know, one of the things I was struck by, especially in the later parts of, of the history where I'm getting into field work and lo- working with, with modern day curanderas, especially in the, in the state of New Mexico, uh, was that many of them had um, a lot of overlap, as I talk about with the book, with different uh, what we might consider new agey practices. Um, most of the curanderas that I interacted with were very... Um, conversant with with Reiki, with acupuncture, um, with um, shamanism and uh, different sorts of shamanism that might range far outside of of Mexican shamanism um, and so on and so forth. You know, talking about even UFOs occasionally, um, that wouldn't be untypical, but still um, having a wide range of understanding of, of what sort of therapies they could use and how they understood themselves spiritually. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not a very new agey person um, at all, but being around these people and feeling their confidence and understanding um, the appeal, you know, really, I think feeling the appeal that they had uh, their attraction to these kinds of new age therapies of, of, thinking of the body as just full of energy that can be manipulated uh, either psychically or with, um, you know, Reiki movements or different things that come from the, the, the modalities of curanderismo. You know, it's, it's very seductive. Um, you know, I, as, a, as a relatively skeptical person, uh, nevertheless, I really wanted to also have the confidence they had. And uh, I was really excited, I think, a little bit by the romance of uh, being able to access this power uh, over your surroundings and over over bodies in a way to help them feel better. Um, and so I think there's, you know, I, I think a good, a good scholar has to be, you know, cognizant of how, you know, those kinds of feelings, you know, the sympathy or, or even empathy that I was having for where they were, but at the same time, uh, trying to keep a critical view and, and understand where did these, um, you know, certainly in the 1950s, Mexican-American curanderas were not using Reiki. So when did that start and how did that start? Um, and looking at that sort of thing, those, I think those were some of the breakdowns. Um, if you don't, can I continue? Yeah, sure. In fact, this is a great segue because I was going to ask you about the uh, the history, a, a little more about this other history that you tell in this book, which is really the history of the metaphysical stream, we might say, following Catherine Albanese um, in U.S. religiosity. Is that where you were going to go with this? Yeah, I was, oh, <laughs> was going to go for sure, because I think that when I was talking before about narratives of healing or, or, or narrative predispositions in, in our rhetorics about our bodies, uh, one of the things that, that I'm certainly not the first person to uncover, but I, I'm, I'm definitely on board with this, uh, this line of scholarship, that there is a major current in um, North American Anglo religion that has to do with a metaphysical fascination of, 
thinking of the again the world being imbued with energy and that human beings through either their mental power or through uh, the aid of of spiritual beings are able to manipulate that energy uh, that there can be various uh, realms of of um, dimensions let's say or or um, different levels of, of reality uh, that people can access. Uh, all those things have been part of our history from the get-go, as a lot of historians have shown, from uh, the signs and wonders of, of the colonial period uh, to um, the rise of spiritualism in the 19th century, uh, communicating with the dead, um, and then eventually the rise of new thought and Christian science and the power of positive thinking and the eventual sort of morphing into some of, uh, and, and I should say theosophy and a fascination with Eastern religions, and all of this eventually morphing into the late 20th century, mid-20th century ideas about uh, New Age, uh, lines of power in the earth, all these sorts of things that are part, uh, you know, neo-paganism, many of this multifaceted movement of metaphysical religions that have, that have been considered in other works. Um, I was able to identify various ways in which those currents are really uh, functioning in the way a lot of people think about their bodies and and what their bodies can and can't do, how they can and cannot be healed, and what sort of people or forces might be able to do, have healing effect on them. And, uh, yeah, I think one of the exciting things about this book for me was discovering that there has been a lot of uh, places where Mexicans and Mexican-American healers – in the folk Catholic tradition of Curandrismo have, have overlapped and resonated with those Anglo metaphysical traditions. So maybe we could pull back to the 19th century then, and Americanists will be familiar with a lot of the movements that you talked about, theosophy, spiritualism, new thought, but some of our other listeners might not be. So Uh, what are a few of the, I know, well, of course we think everyone's going to be an Americanist, but it turns out (laughs) some some people study other things. Um, (laughs) So um, what in the 19th century, as these Anglo-American settlers are coming into these borderlands, as they're encountering um, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans later, um, what are some of the uh, preconceptions or ideas that, that they, the Anglo-American settlers, are bringing with them that are bumping up against Curanderismo and and fueling it for them? Well, especially by the end of the 19th century and coming into the 20th century, uh, there is definitely new thought has definitely spread. And, and new thought, just in a nutshell, is an idea that the power of the mind um, is ultimately the most real and powerful thing and that the, the experience of the body, the sensational feelings that we have in the body, uh, can be manipulated and sometimes even overcome or even you know totally mastered by the power of the mind. And so mind cure is a very important part of new thought, uh, this idea that um, through the right kind of thinking, uh, but also uh, the power of one person's mind you know, being very much focused on someone else's reality can also have... Um, a therapeutic effect or, or a religious effect. Uh, so this new thought, and there were definitely new thought healers and proponents uh, throughout the West by this period. Um, and if they weren't there physically, their works were there. Um, there are a couple places in the book I, I show uh, libraries of people that included books uh, similar to um, Mary Baker Eddy's um, Science and Health, 
uh, and some other, though she wouldn't identify herself as New Thought, a similar sort of current there of, of mind healing. Um, so that, that was there. And the other thing that was there at the time were sort of the salon culture uh, that was uh, very much fascinated with uh, seances and with mesmerism and uh, magnetic forces uh, and also a bit of an excitement as well about the growing technology of electricity. Um, I wish I had been able to say a lot more about this in the book, um, but the, this idea that electricity uh, and the electrification of, of, of our lifestyles at that time in history had sort of a magical uh, component to it, that this power was uniting things. And so... Um, for example, I talked about the frisson with uh, having being touched by uh, Teresa Urrea. Uh, there were also a lot of reporters who were quite willing to speculate that the the nature of her power, even though she herself uh, did not come up with this idea, they diagnosed the nature of her power as being mesmerism, that she had a mesmeric power over uh, the people she dealt with. So uh, one of the things I think you could say was happening, even if Mexican uh, healers themselves were not explaining themselves in this way to their Anglo clientele or Anglo patients that the Anglo patients who had familiar with new thought or with mesmerism were understanding what was happening to them in those ways. And it was working. And so what about then in the post Reiki era? So what happens in the (laughs) 1960s, 1970s to the present? I mean, at what point does new age enter this vocabulary and how does it change what healers are doing, what they're drawing on? You know, it's hard to pinpoint an exact date, but definitely by the early 90s, uh, there are Mexican-American healers who are very much uh, doing things like Reiki, um, redeveloping traditions that, uh, uh, that, that, are, that have an indigenous root in Mesoamerica, uh, but don't necessarily, there is no way to really trace them as having moved historically from, let's say, the 1500s up to the late 20th century, uh, things like sweat lodges and things like that, they get reclaimed. Um, and so uh, while I think I'm, I'm probably on dicey territory to say that reclaiming indigenous traditions is new age, um, unless you're absolutely an Anglo, um, there, there is no reason to think that that's an historical sort of continuation of things that people had been doing all these centuries so a way getting re getting in touch with with our roots, um, re-embracing uh, original traditions, um, tapping that power of the authentic and the Indian uh, that is part of the Hispanic or Chicano experience. Um, those sorts of things were happening at that time period, and. Um, Interestingly, I think many of the rhetorics that were going on with with getting in touch with the Indian and the power of, of the Indian uh, were really borrowed or easily um, moved from one sort of new agey place where people were trying to, uh, a lot of white people oftentimes were maybe uh, stealing or appropriating Native American traditions or, or uh, religious ceremonies. Um, in a Mexican-American context, it's a little more complicated because there there is a, a legitimate claim to an indigenous heritage. Um, but as historians have, you know, it's, it's really hard to say that these things were actually inherited. They're more reclaimed. Uh, so all that was happening uh, in that period. 
And um, the other thing that, of course, was happening is that the counterculture of the 60s that was sweeping um, North America, um, certainly we should include the urban areas of Mexico in that as well, that there were young Mexicans um, who were very much interested in um, getting away from their, you know, their grandparents' Catholicism and trying out new spiritual uh, paths of, of studying Buddhism, of reaching out into some different types of meditation or uh, um, those sorts of alternative spiritualities, we might call them. So in the more contemporary period then, are curanderos in the borderlands often Mexican-born, or do they tend to be American-born? Um, they tend to be American-born, the ones that I'm most familiar with, um, and uh, the ones who will have practices or, you know, uh, shops set up. Um, no, I guess I shouldn't say they tend to be. I'd say, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I should say more clearly, I don't know. The ones I'm most familiar with are American-born. Um, that, um, but I think that there's, I mean, in the border region is such a, it's, it's hard to imagine away from there in some ways, but there's just such a communication back and forth between Mexico and the United States for many people. Um, unfortunately travel has been limited because of the crazy political situation between the two countries. Uh, but a lot of ideas and other things cross the border. Right. Yeah. So that's the um, the reminder that that you're giving us in a way that some of the um, the new age or the uptick in new age that we often think about as limited to the American side of California, for example. Right. Actually, we should think about it as a larger North American movement. Absolutely. I mean, there are cities in outside uh, Mexico City. Uh, there's one called Tepoztlan that's well known as sort of an, a new age hangout. Uh, where people can go to have their chakras adjusted or to have uh, their auras photographed, uh, the sort of things that you might imagine in uh, sort of a more new-agey city in the United States, um, like Sedona in Arizona, uh, someplace like that. So um, I had mentioned Tom Shortash at the beginning of our conversation, but as you were writing this book and as you were researching it, what other books were you reading, were you picking up? What was most influential for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, one of the things, I, I really, uh, it's hard to say this, it was more of a primary source document, uh, but one of the, the books that comes out a lot, I think, in the text is a book written by a curandera, um, a Mexican-American curandera. She's from Texas, but it grew, uh, ended up in Albuquerque, uh, died in 2011, uh, named... Um, um, <laughs> I, I, she was on my mind constantly for three years, and I can't think of it. Avila. Avila. Elena Avila. And uh, her book is, is kind of amazing. It's an, an autobiography of her development as a healer. Uh, but it also involves her trips back and forth to Mexico. Uh, she had had sort of this sort of light experience of curanderismo with her family, um, you know, a, a few folk remedies here and there, but realized later as a nurse that she really had a call, as she felt it, to get back to what she considered to be her roots, her indigenous roots in Mexico. So she went and trained uh, with two different characters um, in Mexico City and, and around Mexico City uh, to become a master curandera, at least in her assessment, and she came back and it's had a tremendous effect on healers throughout New Mexico. And it kind of became a teacher of teachers 
there for many years, uh, leading workshops, training people in this understanding of curanderismo that included a lot of uh, these ideas that I talk about some in the book, and I, I would love to expand in the future, um, of these this idea that there is sort of an unbroken line of knowledge that can be tapped from the Aztecs uh, that went underground at the time of the conquest and now, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s, uh, elders of these communities supposedly said, well, now it can come back out to light and be taught to the world. Um, you know, these are traditions that are really hard to, I think, critique as a scholar um, because it sounds like you may be saying, well, that's not true uh, or those are false claims um, I don't really try to do that in the book, but I do try to historicize them and contextualize them and say that, you know, part of the movement uh, of of the New Age world, but also if curanderismo at this time, was to reclaim an imagined past, uh, which is not to say that it's a completely fictional past, uh, but an imagined and a, and a romanticized past uh, where there was a time before Christianity uh, where Aztecs and other Mesoamerican indigenous groups had um, a much more complete and holistic understanding of the body and had almost sort of a magical power to heal and to understand wholeness. Uh, that, uh, and I think that the discussion for scholars then is to show out how that sort of move is about healing some of the atrocities of, uh, of the Spanish conquest and, um, of the things that happened to indigenous people over the past 500 years in, in North America. Uh, so I think we see a, a lots of different sorts of healing narratives on different levels all coming together uh, in the way some people at least are experiencing curanderismo today. So if readers walked away with one idea or a, a set of ideas even, <laughs> what, what would you hope, what kinds of messages would you hope that they take away from this book? I don't know. I loved your introduction. I was like, oh, good. Someone read it and got it. That's great. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe just your introduction. But uh, that I think an important thing to get from this book is that Mexican-American religions and religious people, Mexican-American religious people are not frozen in time, uh, that they're not, um, um, you know, a, a diorama in some sort of natural history museum that have, you know, that we can just observe and walk away from that. It's a dynamic and changing and complicated uh, tradition that is in response to uh, the people and places and things happening around them. And uh, that I think that's an important thing to get from this book. But as you said, it's a tricky line, of course, when uh, curanderos may understand what they're doing as reclaiming um, a, a past that has maybe been unchanging or hidden, but can now be reclaimed in the present. It, it is a tricky line. And it's also been, I think, a little bit of a tricky line for me as an Anglo-American scholar studying people, um, uh, Mexican-American people, uh, to not try to claim that I have you know, the, the true interpretation of what has happened in history. Um, but at the same time to also say that I, my honest opinion is that the it, part of the way we, we keep Mexican Americans and other uh, minority groups from being diorama pieces is by uh, being as robust and intentional about opening 
scholarly pursuits about those communities to to the entire academy. Have any Curanderos read your book, or or have you gotten any feedback from them? Um, no, you know, I have I've gotten very limited feedback. Um, the man, um, Dr. Cheo Torres, who's I talk about in, in one of the latter chapters of the book, who's a vice president of student affairs, I think, at, at University of New Mexico, and right. and runs a class in curanderismo at UNM. Um, I sent him a book, and we've corresponded about it, and um, he's been basically positive, um, but I don't know to what extent he's interacted with the book, um, and he hasn't given me any extensive feedback. Um, I also sent copies of the book to a few of the people that I interviewed and talked to or, or used images from, um, but again, yeah, I have not heard back from people. So congratulations on finishing your first book. And then, (laughs) and yeah, now you have two seconds of celebration and the question that always comes right after what's next on the docket. What are you working on now? I'm really excited about my next project. Um, There is a really famous church in Northern New Mexico called the Santuario de Chimayo. And it's famous because uh, if you walk into the church and go into a, the side chapel, in the floor, there's a hole in the floor that's full of sandy dirt. And for 200 years, people have been coming there in, 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 in trickles, but also in massive pilgrimages to get this dirt, which is thought to have uh, miraculous healing properties. Um, and so my next project is a history of this church, uh, how it came to be, uh, what stories about healing dirt predate this church that are uh, stories that come from the Pueblo people that are in the area, uh, how the Catholic church has um, both uh, kind of embraced this idea of this miraculous dirt, but also been very tentative about it or try to control it. Uh, and also this kind of the story of New Mexico as well as a really interesting place that uh, has a humongous native American population compared to most of our states has a very large Hispanic population, uh, and then also has um, a very powerful Anglo political elite uh, in many ways. And so it's it's a great story. Uh, it's uh, going to be a history of that church and how it has interacted with different communities uh, of pilgrims and of health seekers in New Mexico. Sounds fantastic, and also a great excuse to travel to New Mexico. Exactly. Which, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Brett. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, for inviting me. <laughs>